and welcome to Tech Talks, a series of podcasts related to science and technology brought to you by Inside, the official student media body of IIT Bombay. Today we have a very special host for you, Prashant Pawan, who is an ex-chief editor of Insight. Prashant is in conversation with Sonam Motwani, who will be introducing herself shortly. Hi, I am Sonam Motwani and I am the founder of Karkhana.io. We simplify manufacturing so that new products go from prototyping to production in a matter of a few days. Hey Sonam, thanks for joining. Uh, it's great to have you here. Just to go back a little bit about how all this started, uh, you did your undergrad at IITB in aerospace, is that correct? Uh, yeah, Prashant. Uh, so I completed my bachelor's uh, in aerospace engineering from uh, IIT Bombay in 2013. Nice. And uh, how, how did you get from there to, uh, you know, what you're doing today? Like, where, where did the interest in manufacturing come from? Sure. Uh, so uh, when I made the choice of uh, going for aerospace, the main reason was that it sounded pretty cool. I didn't really know much about uh, what exactly I was going to learn uh, in this particular stream. So um, after I started at IIT, uh, like most enthusiastic first year students, I tried my hand on a bunch of things, uh, starting from arts, uh, sports, to getting involved in tech. And I think tech was what uh, struck the chord most with me. Uh, so I got into robotics in first year. From there, I moved on to building race cars uh, for this competition called Formula Student. And I think uh, that is what stayed for most of the part, or rather I'd say uh, all the time I spent building uh, race cars uh, with my team, uh, was what defined uh, my time at uh, uh, at IIT. That, that and, sounds. Uh, it, oh, go, go ahead. It, it was also a lot about uh, the camaraderie that it brought along, working together as a team towards a common goal. So that's what uh, got me started uh, here. It was my first encounter with manufacturing, and uh, then I started my career with PNG, and where I was solving multiple uh, engineering problems across different business units. So uh, that was where I saw the underlying challenges in manufacturing industry in India. And uh, what I figured was that it was extremely uh, challenging to procure a custom part or product or uh, uh, even finding the right manufacturing partner was an extremely tedious activity. There was no easy way to figure out which manufacturing process to go for, where to manufacture, what a fair price would be to pay for a custom part. So uh, all in all, I found manufacturing as a highly unorganized industry and that was what I wanted to change. Got it. And uh, I, I think, you know, you, uh, you're talking a little bit about how uh, the industry exists, you know, in India at that time at least. Uh, was it very different outside? Like, did you have um, insights into how it worked across the world as well? Uh, so actually, uh, that was the experience that uh, the job at PNG uh, gave me. So when I was working as a part of engineering team uh, across uh, uh, different business units at uh, at PNG, uh, 
there we were working with a lot of suppliers who were in China, in uh, Eastern Europe. And uh, there, uh, what we saw that there was quite a lot of difference in the professionalism uh, between the suppliers, the speed of coordination. Uh, but when we were trying to uh, localize some of that business to India, uh, the experience was a little contrasting in the sense that there was uh, the lead time for uh, manufacturing was much longer. Uh, the speed of response that we got from the suppliers was much longer. And uh, even to uh, figure out that out of the group of suppliers that we were targeting to work with, which one would be the right choice was something that took us a lot of time uh, here in India. So those were some of the differences that uh, we felt. And uh, uh, like naturally, there is not much data out there, uh, or I would say organized data out there uh, on the internet uh, that one could uh, gather and make such decisions here in the country. Yeah, uh, that, that's, I mean, that totally makes sense what you're saying. And um, it, would you say like things are, you know, starting to change a little bit now? Or like, is it, I mean, I'm sure there's still a ways to go, but, but how are things looking since you started? Uh, so, uh, I think one of the major factors that is bringing about some change and would bring, bring about larger changes in the years to come is uh, the general uh, push towards digitization. We are seeing most of the industries uh, going online, uh, most of the industries uh, uh, seeing a lot of adoption of uh, smart devices like now everyone here seems to be using a smartphone and being pretty confident with that. Uh, so same goes for uh, manufacturing as well, uh, be it a machine operator in a small machine shop to the factory owner. Everyone is uh, pretty well versed with uh, uh, using Android phones. And I think uh, there is a lot that could be done on that front that if we could create such pieces of technology which could be adopted through such smart devices, but then there a lot can happen that would transform the way manufacturing works today and uh, do the phase change from being a very uh, slow paced and uh, traditional industry to a fast moving and uh, modernized one. So that's where I think a lot of effort is being made over the past uh, three to four years and a lot of effort that we would see uh, in in the next few years to come as well. Uh, that's uh, very interesting. It, it's not something you would think about, but uh, it totally makes sense that because now people are using uh, smart devices a lot more just in their personal life for communication or entertainment, uh, that ability to work with those devices obviously translates into the workplace as well, no matter what the industry. The fact that these people would now be more comfortable like working with all kinds of digitized devices totally makes sense. It's just not something that would strike you as obvious, right, when you think about it. Yeah. True. Very cool. And um, I mean, in fact, on, on the other side of that discussion, manufacturing is not something a lot of common people understand. Like I don't like obviously we, uh, you know, we know that there's a lot that goes into it. Um, we know we benefit from using a lot of uh, devices made through cutting edge manufacturing processes. But to an extent, we we don't know what's going on under the hood. We take it for granted. Right. And when you and I were talking about uh, you know, doing this discussion, 
Uh, you brought up a lot of uh, those interesting nuances. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. Like if we if we consider something like a safety mm -hmm. razor, um, and yeah. just this looks like a simple object, right? But what all goes into making one? Uh, so actually, uh, grooming or shaving has uh, been an important uh, cultural practice uh, for humans since primitive times. Uh, nonetheless, like even till early 1900s, most men used to still shave at the barber. Uh, and that's when uh, slowly the adoption of uh, razors uh, uh, came into uh, a household practice and uh, now what we see very commonly around us is the modern version of safety razors uh, what seems very commonplace actually is a novel piece of uh, engineering and manufacturing so uh, i'd like to deep dive a little uh, on what goes behind uh, manufacturing one uh, so let me first st get started with uh, with the blades of the razors itself. The, the blades that we see on the razors, all of them, or rather most of them, are of uh, the same size and uh, uh, of very, very accurate dimensions. So uh, in fact, the material that is used to make the blades is also, uh, also has a very, very uh, particular composition. So it, it contains... Uh, uh, chromium, which essentially makes the makes the steel uh, difficult to rust and uh, prevents uh, any type of corrosion. Mm. Uh, also, it has some percentage of carbon that uh, hardens the blade. So, also if you see the thickness uh, of the material uh, for the blade, it's about 0.1 mm. So, it's more like a tape-like material that uh, uh, that is cut into a particular shape. So, how the stainless steel that is used uh, gets to become so hard at the same time can be bent i'd want to discuss uh, a little bit about that yeah so uh, what yeah so uh, the steel that is uh, uh, utilized here is first uh, hardened by heating it in an electric furnace uh, to temperatures as high as 1000 degrees celsius and then it is got made to uh, rapidly cool uh, at a very low temp temperature of minus 80 degrees Celsius by uh, quenching it into water. Uh, this makes the steel very, very hard, but at the same time, uh, it's quite brittle at this stage. So next, what is done is uh, the process called uh, tempering, where the material is then again uh, hardened to a temperature between 250 to 400 degrees Celsius and then slowly cooled uh, at atmospheric temperature. This uh, second heating cycle essentially gives elasticity to the stainless steel uh, that is used and the, bit, uh, the material now ends up becoming uh, hard to break. At the same time, it uh, maintains the elasticity that uh, makes the material easy to bend as well, mm. but regain its shape after, uh, after you release it. Okay, very cool. And uh, obviously, the, one of the important uh, parts of the uh, blade is the edge that cuts, right? And I would imagine a lot goes into uh, making sure that edge is, you know, it, it has the properties it needs and so on. Yeah, Prashant. So, in fact, uh, the process of uh, forming the edge of the blade is also called edging. So, the way it goes is that it's also a multi-stage process. The edge of this cut piece of stainless steel is then um, uh, made to grind 
against a coarse whetstone first and then you move from the coarse one to the next finer whetstone and finally go for grinding the tip of the blade with an even finer whetstone so it's essentially start from coarse go to a uh, second stage finer whetstone and then to the finest whetstone to get final sharpness on the edge of the blade after this uh, three step process then the burrs that come on the edge are removed through the polishing process after the polishing process there is some sort of coating that is applied to the blade which essentially makes it even uh, more smooth across the skin also uh, provides additional rust protection to the steel uh, so this all in all increases the durability of the razors got it and um, this is done for like millions upon millions of blades too right yeah in fact uh could uh, you ask this because uh, uh, the speeds at which these blades are produced go up to uh, 100 to 1200 uh, units in in a minute so wow. that's like really really fast uh, in fact it got gets me thinking that uh, since there are 1000 blades being produced in a minute there must be around that many razors that are getting utilized in a minute so it it's just a boggling fact yeah yeah you, you don't uh, realize the scale of it like it it, it makes yeah. sense when you think about it but uh, totally it, there, there's going to be like quality control to be maintained as well right actually there's a lot that uh, goes behind inspecting uh, each and every piece of uh, blade there's an interesting fact so if you look at the blade you'd see that most of the surface of the blade reflects light and shines whereas the cutting edge is something that appears uh, black under light that's the inspection process that is uh, used to make sure that every blade that is produced and passed for quality uh, meets this criteria that the edge of the blade does not reflect any light and is completely uh, black if it ends up reflecting any light means that it is not sharp enough and gets rejected as a defective product cool and and all this is just in the blade <laughs> yeah <laughs> there's still the rest of the handle and what not uh, for something you would think is a simple device yeah so uh, there are actually uh, uh, plastic portions uh, in the cartridge also so you'd see there is plastic on the top there is plastic at the bottom and then there's something that's holding uh, two blades uh, together in the cartridge uh, those are tiny uh, plastic pieces that uh, essentially form the cartridge and the Uh, assembly part of uh, of the blades uh, in fact the uh, uh, a lot of blades today uh, or rather the cartridges today have a strip of uh, of a special type of uh, uh, resin which when uh, uh, when exposed to water becomes like a a slippery substance which provides ease of shaving so it's mm. it's essentially a resin that reacts with water and uh, forms a soft layer uh, so that there are no cuts while shaving oh wow okay is that something like that, that can you can see with the naked eye i'm i'm trying to recall if i've noticed it you must have seen a blue uh, blue line on the cartridge mm. uh, and uh, that's something that also get used away uh, with uh, every shave right. so and it it forms a soapy layer when you shave right Okay, it's the same thing. I, I didn't realize yeah. that it also uh, aids in like a smoother, um, you know, feel of the blade. Like I always thought that was just an indicator. So that's that, that's good to know. <laughs> uh, 
very cool and and that's so that that's kind of what goes into the cartridge is what you're saying yeah yeah mm. Uh, and then uh, the, uh, there is the handle part. So uh, even on the handle, um, a lot of uh, uh, good quality razors uh, would have two different types of plastics come together. So one is that provides the rigidity to the handle. And then there is softer rubber-like plastic that is coated over the hard plastic and uh, provides a good grip to the razor. So here also there, there is a complex injection molding process where two different types of plastics go into the same mold. And uh, after one plastic is molded, the mold rotates and then another softer plastic gets, uh, gets into the mold and covers up on the, uh, on the hard plastic and forming a soft rubbery layer. Got it. And so I, I guess the idea there is uh, the inner uh, plastic is to make sure it's it's sturdy enough, right? And and the rubbery layer is more like for usage, like that. That's the idea there in in making it. Yeah. 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 So it it makes uh, the grip of the handle better. Yep. Yep. Uh, yep. And uh, easy to use uh, for the razor overall. And uh, I think one thing that I mentioned to you even when we were talking about this earlier was uh, how like there's the metal components of the razor, right? And then there's all the plastic components coming together as well. Uh, and, and that I'd imagine is something pretty common, right? In most things we use where there's metal components that do their job and then there's the plastic that is serving a different purpose. Um, and you were mentioning how uh, there are many cases where the metal really is plastic. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah and, and I think I think we said even things like phones and laptops have some such surfaces did, did I understand that right yeah yeah so um, in fact a lot of phones that we see around us it's very hard to uh, hard to say whether the body is made up of uh, plastic or is it metal like only when you've left it on the table uh, for some time and you touch the surface and you find the surface cold that gives you an impression of the body being metal but otherwise by the appearance of it uh, it's uh, it's pretty hard to conclude whether it's plastic or metal uh, because the kind of advances that we've made uh, in terms of uh, how plastics could be made to look like metals through different uh, plating technologies where you deposit uh, a layer of other materials on plastics which give it the same uh, shine and luster and make it look like a metal. Uh, and is that, uh, that makes sense and is that done like for an aesthetic reason or like what? So uh, there are uh, multiple uh, applications to it. One, uh, if you have to make something out of metal, uh, it's, it's much more uh, complex and uh, and expensive, uh, whereas if uh, a very complex shape has to be uh, achieved on a plastic, uh, that's a cheap. There are like a lot of cheaper ways to do that, as well as uh, uh, that's a simpler thing from manufacturing uh, perspective. Getting different shapes and contours in plastics uh, is uh, more economic as well as uh, a simpler process. So th that's why it makes plastics more favorable on uh, on a lot of devices around us. At, and uh, secondly, uh, plastics are much lighter than uh, metals. So uh, that's where we see a lot of uh, automotive components uh, are uh, made of plastic, but uh, no one 
or rather uh, when you when you see uh, plastics on luxury products uh, it can be quite a bummer so uh, to still uh, conceal the appearance of plastics and to make them look rich like metal uh, the the modern plating processes come handy ultimately the reason is uh, people like seeing a metal like finish it sounds like right like mm -hmm. that that's the desired mm -hmm. um, uh, look of the product that customers want mm -hmm. and but but then the challenge with that you're saying is uh, it, it's not as cost effective as plastic metal manufacture and yeah. it yeah. may not be as amenable to like molding it into different shapes or achieving you know tight corners for lack of a better phrase um, yeah and so that's why Plastic is used, but it's made to look like metal. Uh, th yeah. that, that's very interesting. Like how a manufacturing innovation had to be made, uh, you know, uh, because of what is ultimately a customer preference, right? Like it's not necessarily based on uh, how the product performs. It, it's more of an yeah. aesthetic. Very nice. Yes, uh, especially uh, in products that we interact with, um, on a daily and in fact like hourly basis uh, we prefer those products to look good to the eye as well uh, so yeah i think in most of the devices uh, uh, that we use around us uh, it's becoming harder to say what's plastic what what's metal you you know you mentioned cost effective and i was like just wondering in in a manufacturer of a lot of these things Obviously, cost plays a big role, and it's something that tra gets transferred to the end customer as well. Like the costlier it is to manufacture, uh, it's reasonable to assume that the price of the product will be higher as well. And you mentioned how plastic is slightly more cost effective than, say, metal. Uh, you do mm -hmm. see a range of products, like a range of prices, even with like plastic made products, right? Like you have uh, th things that cost like maybe a dollar or a rupee all the way to like thousands of dollars in rupees. And when we were talking about this earlier, uh, but I think one interesting example you brought up is like the tea lights that we use in festivals like Diwali, like the lamps that you light up. And, and you yeah. were mentioning how they're extremely cheap, like just a, a rupee, under a rupee, I think is what you said. Yeah, yeah. Like so, how, how is uh, in that? Fact, yeah. Uh, yeah, so actually I, I was quite intrigued uh, knowing the price of a tea light when I bought some uh, during Diwali and uh, uh, that made me do some number crunching uh, behind how uh, how that product could be sold and when I say uh, sold like uh, that's the retail cost not the wholesale cost mm. uh, of uh, like one to two rupees. So. If you look at the tea light, it contains of an aluminum container. Uh, then it has uh, the wax coin inside it and it has the wick. Uh, after that, there is like a bundle of uh, 15 to 20 of those packaged together and there would be uh, uh, some sort of uh, sticker or label put on it. And then a lot of these bundles would then be packaged in cartons. Uh, sent to different warehouses from those warehouses probably they'd go to different distributors to retail shops and even to the roadside uh, vendor and from there you could buy uh, buy a packet where uh, the cost of one tea light would be in the range of uh, one to two rupees so what i did was i tried to figure out how that could be possible so if you if you look at uh, the cost of aluminum 
I'm assuming here that it's bought in bulk when you have to uh, get into bulk manufacturing of tea lights. Right. Uh, so aluminum costs somewhere around 150 rupees a kg. And uh, then I did some math to figure uh, how much aluminum would approximately go into making uh, m- making the case for uh, one tea light. So that came to around a gram, uh, okay. which then roughly costs around 15 paise. Mm. Now coming to wax, uh, the common wax that's used in candles costs again in bulk around 60 rupees a kg and uh, in one candle uh, the amount that would go would be uh, between 5 to 6 grams so I approximated it to come to around 35 to 36 paise. Uh, then there would be the cost of the wick, which I would assume would be like 1 to 2 paise looking at aluminum costing 15 paise. Uh, and in the scheme of things then I'd assume that Packaging and shipping would be another 10 paise contribution to one tea light. So all in all, uh, that comes to around 60 paise. Uh, So still there is uh, room for uh, another 40 to 50 paise to spend on uh, logistics, etc. And uh, still make margins on this product uh, that the consumer buys at uh, 1 to 2 rupees. All right, so th- this was all uh, really uh, great to understand and plastics obviously are something that are now an indispensable part of everything we use, right? Um, but you do also read and hear about the environmental or the sustainability implications of using plastics, right? Where, whether it comes to yeah. biodegradability or uh, just being more uh, responsible about how we use plastics. Um, yeah, actually, uh, there are certain type of plastics which have been uh, banned for usage in right. certain geographies where there are uh, other plastics um, which uh, pass that criteria and uh, continue to be used. Uh, I think uh, uh, as consumers, we uh, really need to be more cognizant uh, about what goes behind uh, the products that we used, what kind of impact on the environment, different materials, uh, different materials create, and uh, and uh, I think that's that's uh, one of the uh, areas of change that I think would be interesting to have, or rather important to have uh, in the years to come. That if we could know what sort of impact the products that we purchase on a daily basis, the products that we use on a daily basis create on the environment, what goes behind manufacturing those parts and products and uh, uh, then we could actually make better decisions uh, uh, in our purchases. But uh, I think that's that's something that the industry as such uh, would not push towards. So it's something that you're saying that, you know, regulators and governments will have Yeah, it's the regulators, the governments uh, could bring about uh, a change in uh, uh, making the consumer more aware about what goes behind the products they use. I completely agree. And I don't think any technical discussion of manufacturing is complete without also discussing uh, the sustainability and um, in in addition Mm -hmm. to just the manufacturing cost. Totally makes sense. Yeah. Great. Uh, This was uh, great, Sonam. Really nice chatting with you. Uh, There's a lot of things that we discussed. I think that, uh, like I said, you take for granted. You don't realize what goes into it. Um, And then when you start laying it out and saying, okay, here's how this is done and here's how this other thing is done, you you realize how much there is to it and uh, how many problems, interesting problems there are to solve. 
Uh, I I really enjoyed this discussion, Prashant. Uh, when you when you get into uh, the depths of figuring out manufacturing, there are so many layers to peel that you can go on and on uh, about it. Uh, really glad we could have this. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope uh, you'll be up for having another discussion some other time on a, on a different manufacturing related topic where we can go deep. Yeah, I'd I'd be uh, super into to do that. Awesome. Thanks, Sonam. Thank you, Prashant. <laughs>